Welcome to the Frontline Conversations podcast, a platform that discusses issues around public policy and current affairs. We can't wait to share insights that matter to you. Are you ready to have the conversation? This is Frontline Conversations. Welcome to all our Frontline Conversations listeners. Today we are joined by Mr. Alan Mukoki, the CEO of the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And today he's just going to be sharing his views with us on uh, South Africa's uh, economic and uh, political landscape. We're going to be touching on a number of topics. Yeah. Uh, Alan, welcome. And welcome. Thank, thank you, you so much for, for the invite. For joining us. As well, yes. Thank you. Um, I think everyone would admit that over the last year there's been a lot of change in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of positive developments that have happened. We had the elections yeah. uh, in May. We've got a new government and things are progressing steadily. Perhaps to start us off, let me ask from the point of view of the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, what is your reading currently of the situation in the country? How does industry feel about the way things are? Yeah, I think that, uh, and thank you for the, for the, for the interview. Um, I, I think that what we see uh, generally is that it's still a very difficult uh, environment. It's still a very difficult trading and economic environment. And uh, what doesn't help is uh, quite clearly at this point in time, uh, notwithstanding the movement, at least at a constitutional development side, or at least the practice of having that level of political stability. Mm. But what doesn't help is that the follow through in so far as the economic growth issue mm-hmm. is concerned, and that's a very massive uh, uh, issue for South Africa precisely because all of us have always agreed Mm. that the uh, triple challenge of unemployment and uh, poverty uh, and inequality can only be resolved, at least insofar as the uh, academic theory is concerned, Mm -hmm. is that you're going to have to figure a way of making sure that there is this economic growth and then when economic growth goes up, it will come with rising incomes and people getting opportunities to participate in the economy in a way that is very inclusive. So I think that we're dealing with a lot of balls uh, in the air Mm. because whether the economy was even growing or not growing, the extent of that particular growth needs to address these big challenges because the challenge of transformation and inequality as it relates to people who have been historically disadvantaged, uh, whose land was taken, the issue of dispossession. You know, this particular economy is the one that is expected to deal Mm. with all those particular challenges and they're not small, they're huge because Mm. they come back whilst you have at an institutional level a level of stability where you say we have politics and we've got a proper national uh, functioning, National Mm. Assembly Uh, there is free political participation there's a very uh, good, strong uh, constitution and I think that in a sense people accept the constitutionality of the state Mm -hmm. that the rule of law is the most important aspect that underpins that constitution Disputes still go to the courts, generally, not always. Our judicial system, uh, the judiciary, is still being viewed as independent, that mm-hmm. you can take disputes into that yes, uh, yes. environment. Uh, there are elections in this country every two and a half years or so, whether they are local government elections or provincial stroke national uh, elections. People participate freely. No bombs are exploding anyways. Yes. And uh, yes, you have civil unrest from time to time around service-level boycotts. But those do not necessarily have long tails in terms of they are not sustaining themselves just like what you'd see in Hong Kong right now with a big Chinese situation. 
So that on one side is a big positive in respect of where we are, but is it something that is sustainable? We don't know whether it is, uh, especially because the economy is not growing and yes. people are not working. And to that extent, when you see the stats coming out of uh, stats as a, a few weeks ago that, in fact, the unemployment <coughs> situation is worsening, that creates a very significant problem. Yes. And when we look at other stats showing that there are between 3.5 and 4 million young people between the ages of 24 and 35 who are not in school, who are not in a team at college, who are not in any apprenticeship uh, program, they are not at any college or university or tertiary institution of learning, mm -hmm. and they are not working. And that's three and a half people between the age of 24 and 35 years. That's a big yeah. social that's the next injustice of leadership. and political risk that the country therefore faces. So that is a very big uh, item on the agenda in respect of the worry uh, that is there. Yes, uh, the, the, there's a new president is coming. He's tried to deal with the issue of craft, and, and that's a positive move in that particular regard. However, what is concerning is that this expected positive reaction that you would have expected should be there because we're two summits last year, maybe more, but we're the job summit and then we're the uh, investment summit. Mm. And they don't appear to have yielded Any the type so of activity that would be expected, which then comes back to, um, I would think, re, which means South Africa is now at a stage where South Africa needs to reevaluate its options. And maybe part of that reason is to try and figure a way around how have you thought about how to solve problems? And perhaps maybe the way we've always accepted this is the way we solve problems may not be the way, be the way problems should be solved that we face at this point in time. And, 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 uh, and, and, and that's a very, it's now becoming a big risk. Yeah. Why am I saying that? As I say, there was a job summit last year. A year after that, whatever decisions were taken or actions were agreed, the situation is not yielding the result. I, I see. Uh, Therefore, I see. exactly. Yes. Are you now not in a space where you ought to challenge whether your thinking was correct in the first place about the things that you said you wanted to do? Here's my question, right? Yes. I mean, a lot, of, uh, a lot of times, certainly over the past seven years or so, we've had a conversation about uh, the regulatory challenges that government needs to do a deep dive of its regulations and yes. things need to change. Mm. In your view, what are the quick wins that government could go for from a regulatory side? Because one would imagine that if you're a business that went to the investment summit and you pledged to invest X amount of money and there are changes that you want to see in, the, in, the, in, in how business is regulated, from your interaction with members, with industry, what would you say are those key things that industry says? If we changed this, this, and this, we're going to begin to see an uptick in economic activity. It's a more complex problem than that, I think, mm. uh, in my view. Yes, uh, um, you know, some people would say that uh, the space of policy uncertainty is, is a problem. Yes. But let me take two steps back. Let's go back again. Is it the problem? This you see, where we are in South Africa, I think the real thrust of my argument at this point in time is more about these things that we've accepted to be 
challenges and hurdles? Are they challenges mm -hmm. and hurdles? Mm -hmm. Did we not get given an opportunity in the current environment to perhaps maybe go back and say, okay, let's go and have a look. We know that there are, to answer your question in another way, there are challenges with certain pieces of legislation. Mm -hmm. But I think that as business we would be very much um, not so totally honest if we expected that the the regulators or the legislatures or the policy for, for, for formulating people ought to be resolving some of those big problems on their own because we know they've got long tails and we know how complex they are. Yes. So I'm saying therefore, number one, when people start to talk about policy uncertainty, the people that say that want certainty, have they actually indicated what is the certainty that they want? Yeah, the business, yes. I'm saying we're sitting on the same side. Yes. And let me tell you what those sticky areas tend to be. It's the legislation relating to the promotion and um, protection of investment bills, if you recall that. And what was the dispute there? The dispute largely from South African business and those multinationals was that in terms of Section 25 or other requirements of the SA Constitution, the issue of BEE is constitutionalized, but in many um, overseas uh, jurisdictions, it actually is not. So some investors then would argue that when South Africa wanted to change the international, the bilateral treaties, they did not want that change because in those treaties, the, the domestic, the jurisdiction could fall into Europe, for instance, which does not necessarily to comply with the Constitution yeah, of the Republic. Whereas the, the, new, the new legislation says we've got a, a constitution, it's a living document. And it's accepted worldwide that it's a very good document. Yes. So with this, we want you to subject yourself, if you're investing in South Africa, to the constitution and the laws of the country. Yes. That became a statement. Which we all profess. That's it. That it is. And therefore, we as business ourselves now needed to say, but is that necessarily a fair argument to be putting on the table? Mm -hmm. That's on the one side. And then you have the securities bill. Mm -hmm. People were complaining a lot about the government wants to control the securities industry, Big companies like ADT were threatening they will leave the country, this and that and the other. And then, of course, you have the big gorilla in the room, not the elephant, the big gorilla, the land expropriation bills. And there are all these acts that precede the situation where we as business have not been fair and honest to say, how do we resolve the issue of the land dispossession that has actually taken place with solutions that are equitable in the final analysis? And then where the Triple B Act and then with the uh, mining and petroleum resources development. So those are the big five, yes. I would think, as I said, promotion and protection of investment act, and then uh, you have the securities thing, and then you had the mining thing, and then you had the triple BE, then you had this, um, um, this, uh, the, this piece. So in the final analysis, these are all, if you look at all these bills, they are all about transformation. Mm. They are all about how to change this very nature of when you talk to either the IMF or the World Bank reports, even the ratings agencies, one of the big risks that tends to be identified, identified is inclusivity. Mm. Now, these bills, by their very nature, are trying to address the very same inclusivity. Yes. But we as business are standing on the outside saying, Maybe there's policy uncertainty. Actually, the truth is that there is no policy uncertainty. Yes. The truth of the matter is that we disagree. Yes. We disagree with the transformation the broad agenda. broad thrust of what we, government we disagree. is disagree. And let's not say it's uncertain when we actually have a different argument about how it should be done. So your, your view then is that business continues to resist 
transformation. Business is not continuing to resist transformation. Government is not able to articulate what it wants to achieve in a in an equitable form. Yes. Why this thing needs to be done? So yes. there's a there's a gap in the communication. Let me give another example. Okay. Let me give an example just to make this particular point. If you look at the Global Competitiveness Index report of the World Economic Forum, mm. there are about 12 pillars that a country is being measured on. Mm. And not in any other, for instance, one of the pillars is the whole idea of uh, primary education and healthcare, mm. linked directly. And there's a reason why primary education and healthcare are actually linked, because based on the World Health Organization, they picked up that there's a very serious problem between health and primary education, yes. okay? You've heard a story where in certain communities in South Africa, for instance, depending on where those children come from, that there are stomachs that live in a poverty environment, but they're not living in a, 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 a poverty nutritious environment. In mm -hmm. other words, they would come from places like in Limpopo, where these women are pregnant, even though they're poor, but they're eating the popo, they're eating the avocado, they're eating. And from a nutrition point of view, those kids, when they grow up, they tend not to have cognitive issues around understanding mathematics yes. and science very, very quickly, because when they were in their mother's stomachs, they actually received all the nutrition that they, they ought to get. Yet they were, they were coming from a poor background. Poverty, yes. But they were not hungry. And they lived in a highly nutritious environment because mm. people didn't have to buy those things. Mm. They pick up the nuts, they, they, they go to the garden, they pick up the vegetables, and they cook and they eat, and so they are really, really, really fine. So, in the end, as we talk about this thing of primary health and education, when you then introduce the national, uh, uh, in South Africa, for instance, the, the, the former uh, health minister was talking about, they were looking at all these kids, and the WHO was talking about we need to look at three things. Occupational uh, speech therapy, mm -hmm. which is, they just call it oral health. And we, look, we want to look at, at hearing. Uh, and then we want to look at, uh, at, at, at eyesight. Because those three things cause a very big problem. In a number of cases, these kids go to class. A child who's blind does not know that she is blind. Mm. She can't see the board. Yes. She's sitting at the back. She only sees the scribbling. She thinks that this is the thing that every other person sees. Yes. So she sees half of what's being communicated to her or third of what's being communicated to her. She gets 60% of the third that she was able to see. Yes. The child who can see like yourself can see 100% of what's being written. They also get 60% of what's being written. So this other child who couldn't see sitting in the class and sits in the back because they don't know any other world. This is the visual world yes. that they are only familiar with yes. because nobody else knows any other world. No one has actually showed her any other world other than the world that they see. They get taken to the back of the class. This child is dull. The child doesn't understand. And other kids can't hear. But they don't know that they can't hear. Even their parents are not aware that they... Yes. <laughs> Which is true, whatever. Yes. It's true. But it's not because this it's child... Like ever, found a medical... This child has a, a genuine medical defect in that they cannot actually hear. Yeah. And they are sitting now in that particular class. Okay? And the teacher says whatever the child hears, half or a third of what's being said. And in application, when it comes to the results, they're not actually giving. And what happens? We say, Mama Angie Mutsaka... We give the problem to her. A health problem now is being dealt by the, 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 the basic education. education minister. And those kids go all the way to the back. And that's the evidence that Mutsualid was giving at Netlek when we were there. The, the, of course, the other one is oral because something, this child cannot speak properly. Mm. And, uh, and my sisters always say to me, you see, that's why you, 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 you speak so much. Because I had that problem, by the way. 
had that problem as a kid. Mm. They turned me away from school because I couldn't speak. Mm. Luckily for me, my parents were semi-professional because my mother was a, a nursing sister at, at Baraguanma. Mm. And when she was having a conversation with one of the doctors, the doctor says, no, 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 you must bring that guy here. He might have an occupational uh, speech therapy problem. Mm. So they took me to hospital and they found me an occupational speech therapist. And then Kumuli Anye, the, 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 the tongue was now speaking properly. They took me back to school. Mm-hmm. Now, if that inter- you never looked back. I never looked back. <laughs> <laughs> I never stopped speaking. That's why my sister says, that's why you talk so much. Let him speak. <laughs> he, he took a very long time to start Catching speaking. Catching up. And I was already seven years of age. So the point I'm making about this, these are not things that Mutsualid would just be talking about. I know because I am a perfect example mm. of what could have happened in a way that's different. Imagine, up. imagine me living in the rural areas with that kind of a problem. Yes. It would have been a conclusion that he can't speak yes. properly. It's okay. It's, it, it, that's the way. He's like that. Yeah. It's okay. Yes. And then I'm not coping at school because I can't speak. I can't but express I myself. Anything, yes. And then I keep being kept back all the time until I give up maybe at standard two or standard three and I go and work in construction or mining, whatever the case might be, because clearly in this environment of school, this is not my future. They found that. They did research. They looked at something like three million kids in South Africa in this particular program that the minister is talking about. They found that a third of those children had one or more of these three conditions. Wow. Do you understand why that is big? This is massive. It's not small. It's a big, huge problem like that. So one of the elements in that uh, World Economic Forum is the idea of the size of your market, how big your market is, is a competitive issue. Mm. So we are not saying these things when we talk to investors, Mm -hmm. that you need to invest in people. Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that all these women who are excluded get an opportunity in education and basic skills so that they can be contributors and participants in the economy so that our economy can be big. So so this is not the message that the government is bringing to business. Mm Transformation remains a compliance regulatory yes. issue. It's a tick work exercise. Have I met his Department of Labor going to check me? Even in many organizations, it's not sitting with the CEO. Mm. It's sitting with either the HR manager or uh, what is it, a, a, a PE, a de- supplier development, something like that. Mm. But it's not something that's top of the mind because we're not communicating. So the gap of communication and education and knowledge exists on both sides. But <clears throat> Would you say, though, I mean, especially for South African business, yes. and we keep hearing all of these stories about South African business sitting on piles and piles of money mm-hmm. that is not being invested. Yes. We've had this conversation about transformation for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Would you say it's a gap in communication or it's simply being evaluated on a business case basis, right? Because, I mean, we've heard of companies... Um, when they talk empowerment, especially community empowerment, the question is, how does this return to us? If we invest X amount of money in a project, how do we get this money back? Which takes you to the issue about commitment to the vision. Yes. Right? Are Are we... Is business as committed to the vision of transformation as we are always led to believe and perhaps just using whatever government's faults yeah. as cover for its own inadequacies or its own unwillingness mm-hmm. to actually play a meaningful role in transforming yeah. the economy of this country? It's, it's a very important question. It's actually a very powerful question because a business as a, as a, as a living thing mm. is, is a euphemism 
it actually doesn't exist. Mm. Okay, there is no such a thing as mm. business. In other words, as an entity that exists, mm. as a single entity, it doesn't actually yeah, exist. Yeah. What does exist are individuals mm -hmm. who then are deploying capital into projects because they're trying to make money. And from time to time, they get together specifically to pursue or protect their interests. Mm -hmm. This is all that exists. Hence. Well, you don't have an individual. Yeah. And so let's come back because this is South Africa. That community of business people happen in the huge majority for reasons of history to be white. Mm -hmm. So they're all white people. You can't divorce the issue of race and the history of the politics of South Africa mm -hmm. from that aspect. Yes. So then the question is very simple. Do you think as individuals, white people would support transformation? Mm -hmm. That's a fair question. Forget about as a compliance issue. Yeah. Because the majority of people that would support transformation, they would support it because it's a compliance thing. Or because it there will enable... points to be had. Yeah, it will enable me to get this new contract or the other contract, maybe with the government, so it's breaking my back. So we, we then have to go back to why is it that you would have people in the community who are not necessarily supportive of the government's program, as it were, mm -hmm. okay? Or of the transformation agenda, as it is. That's why you need to start to change people's minds and hearts, because it doesn't matter how much policy you throw at people, how much legislation or regulation, if it's not turning here in the hearts and no one can see why it is in their own interest mm -hmm. to drive it, because that level of leadership and knowledge and understanding is not necessarily as prominent as most people want to assume happens in business. South African businesses, uh, uh, leaders in general, in big top companies. This is probably one of the few countries in the world where the place is run by uh, a high proportion of accountants and engineers. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually happen elsewhere. Okay, you go to the US, people who run businesses there would be just pure business MBAs, mm -hmm. but not necessarily accountants. Mm -hmm. In South Africa, most of the people who run businesses are accountants. And part of the story is that the, 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 the educational curriculum for you to be an accountant does not necessarily require you to study any social science yeah. or liberal arts. Yeah. So you go to school, you do economics, yeah, accounting, uh, stats, and maybe you might throw in some commercial law and some whatever, anything else. But generally, that's it. You go to other academies, and in particular in the United States, you find that even though the degree is four years, the first year, basically, the emphasis is, is on putting together liberal arts, a stronger liberal arts curriculum in the first year. So you start to understand the issues of politics, of society, mm -hmm. uh, of religion, of philosophy, of economics, maybe, and that kind of stuff. That is the uh, that is the uh, that is the 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 legacy that we have now on in a number of the boardrooms that we have. That level of leadership around issues that relate to society, and where we need to move our country forward, mm -hmm. does not actually exist. I just came from a meeting now um, with the DTI people when we were at Busa to discuss the the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why we are not even doing a lot of work in Africa has a lot to do with exactly the same issue, mm -hmm. the Afro-pessimism. Yes. So until we deal at a curriculum level at primary school with this issue of the perception that we have of each other or, say, a perception that maybe a particular community has maybe of black people, mm -hmm. we're not going to 
move very quickly forwards. And that is the reason why if you look at the media and you talk into a lot of these chat groups, whether it's WhatsApp, whatever the case might be, those people who come from, in fact, say, the black community and who've got some information need to be extremely careful about how they interpret and intersect with the narrative or the lexicon that says people, black people in particular are either corrupt or incompetent yeah, yeah, or both. Yeah. Precisely. It's, 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 there is that level because yeah. very soon... Somebody was saying to me the other day uh, uh, in psychology, they say it's a blended mix. In other words, you blend the truth and the lies. Uh-huh. And if you blend the, the truth and the lies, if say you put 70, uh, 70%, 60% truth and 40% lies, sooner or later people believe 100% of the story because the 60% says that, but some of the stuff is actually true. Mm-hmm. So the media then starts to create this impression of how corrupt we are and that make us a, a, a stunning uh, 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 statement right now. You can't uh, weigh down the psyche of the entire state with probes and commissions of inquiry mm-hmm. on state capture and corruption in a way that is sustained. Mm-hmm. You cannot do that. Mm-hmm. Because what you are doing, you are telling people all over the world that you, there is suspicion that this particular country is very, very corrupt. You've just made this country to be the poster boy for corruption. Yeah. Globally, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. Who knows who is more corrupt in the world than any other institute? Which is the institution in the world that sits down and tracks corruption all over the world? It's Transparency International. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they produce something called the Corruption Perception Index every year. You go into the Corruption Perception Index. Take a small example, just BRICS, us, India, Russia, uh, China, South Africa, and Brazil. We are the least corrupt of all those countries. Mm-hmm. The least China is not even four or five paces <laughs> behind us. They're way back behind us when it comes to corruption. India tries. They're may, maybe four or five steps behind us when it comes to who's better at corruption, yes. not worst, who has the least corruption in those countries. Now, I ask you a question, and it's a fair question, and maybe I shouldn't because I'm running a business organization. Have you ever had Xi Jinping? Have you ever had uh, Modi? Have you ever had Vladimir Putin? Mm-hmm. Taking an investment platform anywhere, whether it's at WEF, whether it's at the IMF, everywhere else, talking about how corrupt Russia or India or China are. Mm-hmm. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Why are we doing that? So we, we feed. You should deal with corruption. I'm yes. not saying don't deal with it. Of course deal with it, by all means. But report what you've done about it. Mm-hmm. Don't be taking a stage and then 40, 50% of your investment pitch is about the fact that, oh, you know, we're so corrupt, we are, we are, we, our state has been captured. Which... which then brings me to the issue, right? From, from your perspective, are you getting a sense that this government, not the sixth administration, mm-hmm. but starting from February last year up to now, yes. is actually clear about what needs to get done to move this country forward? If you take the issue that you're articulating now of mixed messages where on the one hand you are painting yourself as this undesirable, constantly struggling to overcome entity while putting this opportunity on the other side. So on the one hand you're saying, oh my goodness, we're so corrupt, everything has fallen apart. And then on the other hand you're asking people to trust you, to come and put their money. So one, are we clear on the vision? Two, have we articulated that vision? 
I think that it's a, it's a combination of both. I think that they are trying very hard. The president is doing really, really uh, everything that he can in his powers. He's working very hard. You can see that the ministers are working really, really, really hard. However, the problem is different. I think that is what maybe psychologists call a problem of cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. When you, you like two things that oppose each other mm -hmm. and you can't commit to one of those particular things. I think that the best person who speaks on this issue is, uh, is one of my favorite, favorite writers, uh, Amitya Sen, the Indian economics uh, 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 winner, uh, Nobel Prize winner mm. and professor. He tells the story of three kids, uh, Anne, Bob, and Carla, and who are fighting over who should own a flute, the instrument, the flute. Mm -hmm. uh, Anne says that without invalidating the claims of the other two kids, she says that, but of the three of them, she is the one that is proficient and who knows how to play the flute. Mm -hmm. So she will derive maximum uh, pleasure and utility from playing the flute, because she's the one who's proficient in it anyway which means she's making the argument of a utilitarian economist. Mm -hmm. Bob, on the other hand, steps up and says, without invalidating what Anne and, 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 and Carla are saying, but he is the poorest of the three. Therefore, he deserves the fruit more. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he's, uh, he comes from a very poor family, and he will never have money to buy any other toy. And, the, and he's making the argument of an egalitarian economist. And then the third child is, uh, is Carla, who says, wait a minute, I understand what these two are saying. However, it was my blood, sweat, and tears that made the flute. I am the person who made it. Mm -hmm. So I'm the one who actually should have it. And, and she is making the argument of a libertarian economist. Mm -hmm. So what is happening in South Africa at this point in time? You've got a state that is struggling with cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. because it has to balance all these three things. Whether they know that or they don't, but they have to balance those three things. Mm -hmm. So all the interesting parties come into one point with conflicting demands and mm -hmm. interests. And therefore the state is sitting in the middle trying to brew this concoction that may actually poison because as you brew this concoction, you're supposed to taste it. You know, when we grow up, they used to taste this thing. They put the spirit, they would taste, and they end up bending their lips. This is how you knew that, or even the police used to come yeah, when they raid. They used to just look at these women and they look at the one whose lips are bent and says, you are the person who focus on you, we're going to investigate you. So it can ban you this thing because also you can't just put it like this. You don't end up having to take a cup or two. And so you are going through the various high uh, toxic dosages mm -hmm. of the same brew. Mm -hmm. And that's why Omamaba Pekinbamba, they used to die early mm -hmm. because they used to do that. Or poison. They, they're poisoning themselves all the time, trying to get this thing to a, 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 a measurement that is proper so that it's, the other people can it's just right. And it has to be just right, but hot enough to, be, you know, to have that particular kick. That's where the ANC as a government finds itself. With this other recognition, maybe not a recognition, of not really knowing... What is going to happen because they are dealing effectively with new problems which are happening is like getting on, a, on one of those high-speed things when you go to Disney or to, uh, uh, to down the Gold road here, Gold Rift City. And if you are, you are riding that thing for the first time, you don't know what actually is going to happen. So you keep hanging on to everything else and people are screaming all about you and you don't actually really know. So that level of confusion is, 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 is normal because they are, they are dealing a very difficult situation and on top of that, you, you find that someone dropped a knife from the top. And the ANC people or the ministers were 
were waiting on the ground to catch it, but nobody told them that it's a double-edged knife. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter which way you catch it. So when you catch it, it starts to make your hand bleed. Mm -hmm. And you didn't know that it is so, so it got dropped from a high level. But they didn't know they were not supposed to catch the Mm -hmm. knife, which never was theirs in the first place. So that's where you see a, a state that is struggling with its own psychology, its own identity, and then it starts to be a state that is very fearful mm-hmm. of itself and of its own future. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the contestation that you find, which people call factions, is just quite something normal in many organizations. It, it reflects that stress and that strain in, in, in the cracks that then start to happen because in a sense, no one really knows. Mm-hmm. And we don't have the level of, I think, opportunity and an environment to attract the best talent, mm-hmm. given the problem that we face. Because a number of the people who are in the senior, senior executive leadership roles, because those ministerial roles have actually become senior executive roles, many of them do not have the necessary, I would think, training and development and experience and performance track record mm-hmm. of having run complex organizations yes. of that particular nature. Yeah. So for most of them, it's happening for the first time. Yes. And they, as ministers, are relying on each other. And the people that they're relying on, they themselves have never actually handled. You know, just because you're a minister before does not mean you are the right minister for this for portfolio. this type of problem that you are facing today, which is so, as I explained with these three kids, which is so difficult in a globalizing, on one side, environment, where it's also an environment that has become borderless because mm-hmm. you've been hit by WTO agreements on free trade, the drop-down of those GATT things and the drop-down of tariffs, so these goods are coming into mm-hmm. the country. Whether you can go there to the city and say you are just going to go and attack counterfeit, when you remove the counterfeit, you're going to find other goods are going to be there, which are actually substandard goods, but they're allowed and they've been allowed by the DTI agreements that the DTI yeah, signed with WTO to come. So they are decimating the local industry because the Chinese are able to make things much more quicker, much more faster, much more cheaper than we can. We allowed those regulations when we ourselves are not ready to be able to do that. So now you've got that problem that the, 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 the South African government must actually deal with. It's very difficult. Now, on the issue of capacity, yes, um, which leads to ability, yes, um, there's an argument out there that comes predominantly, I would say, from the Democratic Alliance, and it comes largely, I think, from big business, that especially in the current environment that we are dealing with in ESCOM, which which requires a lot of money Mm. to turn around. So there's this argument which has been bubbling under uh, for, I mean, since since democracy, since the dawn of democracy, but I think it's become more pronounced over the last few years. And I think we're almost at the stage when we're going to have this conversation Mm -hmm about privatizing SOEs. Yes. Some saying the, the state has no business running these things mm-hmm. in the first place. Mm-hmm. Others saying even if it did have um, the locker standard to, run, mm-hmm. to, to be in business, it doesn't have the capacity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What is your take on this? Our take is also the same. As you say, big business, we do believe that the government has no business owning productive assets. Mm-hmm. Um, and the government, quite clearly, as you take the case of the energy sector, they should actually get out of the provision of electricity, mm-hmm. generation of electricity, transmission, distribution, and give it to the private sector to run. And the reason for that is because if you are running it as the state and you are running it within a monopolistic environment, mm-hmm. you are going to have a lot of inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. However, it doesn't mean if you, I can go there to Netlake and make this argument, it's not for me to be fighting 
an argument of another group. So big labor mm-hmm. will obviously come with smoking, and they will, and the immune system of of big labor will obviously attack the idea because they would worry more about the loss of jobs. Yes. The immune system of a ruling party, uh, which also ha- still has a, a a a very high, I think, uh, content of maybe a socialist heart, which is not bad, will also attack that idea. But we believe that it is the case. The solution to the government is to make sure that you can create three things. Number one, number one, it's not going to cost the state more. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number to two, let go. Yeah. Number two, um, it is not going to affect the idea of universal access to poor communities. Mm-hmm. So I've now liberalized my area of energy production and distribution and generation, but it's not going to affect poor communities because I will make sure either the poor communities are subsidized or they are going to get universal access to the extent that they need that power, minimum level of power that they need. And then the third thing, the regulation should ensure that the tariffs that would be given to the very same private sector people are not going to be such that they begin to affect the economy adversely. So those are the requirements. You have the control as government, yes. because you've got the instrument of regulation, which is what you are being formed to do, not the ownership, the management, and becoming directors of things that you really don't have any understanding of. Now, how do you square that, the three things, mm-hmm. right? Especially the regulatory aspect of it. Yes. With the issue we are discussing earlier, the dishonesty that comes into the conversation, mm-hmm. right? Inevitably, when you are dealing with regulation, when you are dealing with transformation, and what have you, because largely, I mean, they should leave SAE out of it. Yeah. No one don't really need an airline. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with transformation mm-hmm. or access or social justice, mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. The moment you, you, you enter into that conversation about universal access, there's the, 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 the rejoinder or the reply to that, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. will always be about competitiveness, will always be about cost. Yeah. Uh, and the conversation about labor uh, that you need to, as part of efficiencies, mm-hmm. which is not to say you, government doesn't need to do it itself, mm-hmm. but the very issue we are talking about, that there's this dishonesty or disjuncture when we come to the issue of transformation. Mm-hmm. So how do you think that would interact or intersect, mm-hmm. rather, with privatizing, especially the, 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 the parastatals yeah. that have that social community mandate, so to speak, the provision of electricity, the provision of water, whatever the case may be. Well, that is the issue, because in the the final analysis, you're going to destroy the place if you don't do anything about it. So you are going to have to take those tough decisions and make sure that you are going to have some element of social social security to protect the, the, the people who are going to be adversely affected by it. But because you are putting the regulation on the table, you must go for the RFP and you must put those regulations and see whether they're actually going to be takers. The government cannot decide for itself whether this is going to happen or not. In the final analysis, you are going to have to decide that you, you must take the decision because you can't be held to ransom either. Yeah. But, as I say, if they're employees, for instance, in one of the SOEs, they have rights and they have money. They can cash out their pensions. There are a lot of things that you can do around that. Part of the reason why people, for instance, don't want to quit their jobs. It's because of regulations. There's nothing to do with the fact that I want to hang around here. Yeah. I'll give an example. <laughs> if I'm going to quit my job before the age of 55, you start to tell me my tax on the pension is going to be X. Yes. But if we change that tax regulation because we're doing this work that we're doing, so I'm saying again, 
there's an immune system that is not only sitting with labor, big labor, or is sitting with big political groups, but is also sitting with the big red, uh, 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 the, the bureaucratic system uh, in government itself, where from a SARS point of view, I don't want to think creatively and flexibly and in a way that is innovative around because the country is facing this massive problem. The people who quit SOEs, even if they quit before the age of 55, but maybe the people who are quitting at the age of 50, mm -hmm. all right, between 50 and 55, can go. And we don't have to tax them mm -hmm. as though they are less than 55. We can actually already tax them as though they are already above the age of 60. Mm -hmm. That's all they do. But they can get all their money. We'll agree for them to take a portion. Mm -hmm. We don't have to collecting a tax on everyone. Yes. So On everything. Yeah. So part of the problem of why there is this labor problem that the unions would have is because they know that people are not going to take the retrenchment packages. But there are many people who are going to take the retrenchment packages. They know that it's going to come in a tax-free. SARS was not expecting the tax on that money. It's not in their budget anyway. Yes. So let it go. It's going back into the economy. Suddenly, the 40,000 employees of ESCOM, you will find that you are able to get to that 10,000. And that 10,000 may just be the number that you need mm -hmm. when you privatize. Okay? But you've resolved the issue. There are many people above the age of 50 that would be willing to take the retrenchment packages, and then you only make sure that you don't lose the core skills that you'd need with the new people. So that's one fundamental problem. But you can't do it unless you put it on the table. You must put it on the table. Mm -hmm. Let people debate it. Let's find out why does big labor have a problem. Mm -hmm. But big labor, has got, big labor operates like this. Big labor in South Africa is one of the most democratic institutions, actually even better democratic than government. Mm. They consult their members, go back to their members and say, listen, this is the offer. We've now heard here at ESCOM, the 10,000 people that are identified, they will be able to keep their pensions. We've also heard here at ESCOM, the retrenchment part of it as well, it's going to give you two years of your salary today. Mm -hmm. We've heard that these are all the things that are going to be done. And the employees will turn around and say, wait, 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 Mr. Union, I want this deal. That deal makes a lot of sense for me. I'm 50. I don't have to wait for anything. I'm going to be paid for two years. I'm, I'm going to be 52. I'm not going to pay tax to anybody else. It's time for me to go do some farming, whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the fact of the matter is that you have to get to that particular point. First, I don't, I, don't, I don't agree. I don't, let, me, let me not say I, I don't agree. I don't see the evidence yet. Maybe I haven't seen the documentation and the strategy of how does it resolve the ESCOM question to split it into three units? Transmission, mm -hmm. generation. What, what tends what's, what's going to change? Are you going to have more revenue by doing that? You're going to have more funding? I don't know how. Yeah. So privatization is inevitable because even if the government now says, we want to put, you heard what they were saying. They were in New York just this week. Was it last week or this week? Mm -hmm. uh, the ESCOM people. And they say that they believe that half of the debt of the 450 billion debt that... Um, ESCOM is carrying must now be transferred to government. Yeah. So how different is that? Yeah. Same thing. I think actually one of the ratings agencies already recognizes it on the books of the government, you see? not on the books of ESCOM, because they're saying you've guaranteed it, therefore it's yours. Yeah. Okay. As we head towards our close, do you think government and business are having the right conversations right now? Because there's a lot of talk, right? Uh, you just came from Nedlake. Mm. Uh, we had the investment summit. We had the job summit. Uh, there's this presidential commission uh, that advises the president. Uh, one of the more interesting ones lately is uh, the 4IR. Uh, but are we talking about the right things? Or are we just talking to, 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 to fill a void? 
you know, sometimes we, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But sometimes you can take people into the room, and if they themselves do not recognize that they are not the right people to be in the room, they will not know that. Because as we say, the biggest weakness that all of us can have is not so much that we actually don't know. Mm-hmm. It's that we don't know that we don't, we don't know. know. Yeah. So we have four groups there. We've got big labor, we've got the big community groups, we've got big government, and then we've got big business. Is it the right forum to try and solve problems? Because I assume that Netlake was there only to talk issues of police and legislation. Mm-hmm. But they're not a strategic group mm-hmm. that sits down to resolve on the issue of uh, how to create a job. Government, by its very nature, has never created a job mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. Business are the only people who can create a job having had the right policy to do so. But, and I'm going to make the statements, the model is wrong. The model of assuming that we need to fix policy, we need to get uh, labor liberalization, uh, we then need to grow the economy without having a very clear idea of how we are going to actually do that. Mm-hmm. Or we assume that if we liberalize labor and then we, we, Suddenly we, we, we have policy then someone is going to invest. I don't think that that theory is correct. I think that theory is, needs to be looked at again. What we do know, at least part of the work that's done by some of the thinkers in the world, uh, 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 like the people at CIT at Harvard, the, the Center for International Development, people like Ricardo Hausman, they start to talk about this growth trajectory is based on two things fundamentally. Uh, on one side, the economy needs to be diversified. Mm-hmm and it needs to be complex. In other words, you need to be moving across the product value chain yeah. to make more things than, you've, you've, than you've, you've made before. So that's one part of the argument in respect of what uh, these new thinkers are. That's not what we're saying there in Netlake, by the way. We're talking policy there and liberalization of labor. And then the other piece is what is now being referred to as, as opposed to, say, the, the World Economic Forum talks about <coughs> the Global Competitiveness Index mm-hmm. uh, report and those 12 pillars that I was talking about. These guys are now talking about a new story which they call the Economic Complexity Index. Mm-hmm. Economic Complexity Index measures two things mainly. It measures know-how mm-hmm. and that it measures capability. <coughs> like I said, if you're going to make a shirt or make this, this jacket, it's the CMT, cut, make, and trim. Mm-hmm. So in the cut, making, and the trimming, you have to have expert people. In the yarning, you have to have expert people in distribution and logistics and procurement. That's what the theory then says. You can't just be making shirts, and you don't have the capabilities and the know-how to be able to do that with globally competitive capabilities in that particular sector. Mm-hmm. So, so we're talking to, I think, is it uh, uh, two years or so ago, uh, Jeff Nemeth, who is a CEO uh, or, and, uh, and uh, president of Ford Motor Corporation in Southern Africa. And one of the points that he was making, he says, I make the Ford car here to export to the United States because of Agoa. Yet 60 to 65% of the inputs that go into the Ford car are still being imported by South Africa. Mm-hmm. So that's a classical that's example. A case, yeah. The platinum is here. <clears throat> Most of the minerals that go into manufacturing any of those inputs are made here. Mm-hmm. So all that needs to happen is you and I to say, whether we're not like, we're going to build a capability. We're going to be the best exhaust makers in the world. We're going to locate the plant in Pumalanga, not even in Roslyn or in Silverton. We're going to locate the plant in Pumalanga somewhere. Closest and we're now going to go and build the know-how 
build the R&D, build the capability. If it means we're importing that, we're going to go to home affairs and say we're allowing these 200 people who are going to come and run this plant for the next five years, whatever mm-hmm. the case might be. And they will transfer the skills. We're going to send our own kids overseas to Germany or wherever the case might be where people make cars. And they will come back here with the capabilities or to South Korea. Uh, South Korea is, is the fifth largest uh, exporters in auto. Yeah, they don't have any of the raw material mm-hmm. to be making. This is the way that you are going to be able to do that, according to people like uh, Ricardo Hausman. And that is in many product sets and categories of a lot of the things that we are consuming. We have, uh, what, close to 35, maybe even 40 million um, people who are mobile on some kind of mobile technology, whatever the case might be. And yet we're not making one single product that goes into this iPad of yours, Mm -hmm. yet almost 96% of the raw material that made this this gadget of yours, this uh, note, it came from South Africa. Mm -hmm. That's what the engagement at an economic level needs to be, which means you now have to go and solve X, which is what are we doing around the issue of education. Last point for me is the story is not South Africa. The story is the rest of Africa. Our growth here does not depend on what happens in yeah. South Africa. It depends on our capability to be able to build and sell goods in the 1.2 billion people who actually, actually happen to live here in our own continent. Mm-hmm. For that, you need to build the infrastructure, mm-hmm. the energy infrastructure, generation, distribution, transmission. You need to build the rail lines. We need the 1 million kilometers of high-speed rail networks that will entire this entire place completely and totally. Mm-hmm. Okay, we need to build the water and sanitation infrastructure. People in Cape Town were complaining about water, but we did an MOU with the Zambia Chamber of Commerce and the Minister for Trade, Commerce and Industry from Zambia was giving a keynote. One of the things she said, she says, "Did you know that Zambia actually has 40% of the entire water resource of the Sadek region? Wow! Yet 80% of that water ends up in the Indian Ocean as waste." because we don't have the water and sanitation infrastructure. Agri, for instance, presents for us one of the biggest opportunities to feed the world and to just to feed Africa itself, mm-hmm. because the Great Lakes regions, uh, all the way, uh, DRC, uh, all those places down there, very, very green and very, very, and there's enough water there. But we haven't put in the infrastructure. We have the capital industry, technology management, consulting skills in, in South Africa, but we're not clever enough to understand that Africa is, in fact, the opportunity that unlocks a, 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 a cousin of mine is a, is a bishop of the Methodist Church in London, who, who, the Reverend Dr. John Gizzle. He was posting a very beautiful uh, profile picture. He says that the, the cave that Mr. Uh, showed it to you, he was saying that, uh, he was saying that on his uh, profile picture, uh, let, me, let me just read this for you. He was saying that on his profile picture, um, he says that, um, just take that. He says that uh, he says this. He says the cave you fear to enter may hold the light, light you, you seek. seek. Isn't that beautiful? That is profound. The cave you you fear to enter may hold the light you seek. That's exactly the story when it comes to us and the African the thing. The so what the government, the president, should be doing should be saying: We need to build the rail infrastructure in South Africa. We've got about 30,000 or so. They accused him of dreaming. It's yeah. the state of the nation. That's it, yeah. When he spoke about trains. We need to build the, 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 the high-speed trains. But announce the damn project. Announce it. 
No, no, announce it. I'm telling you now. Here's the thing. You don't have to have money as government to announce a big mega project like that. Announce that we're going to build 100,000 kilometers of rail. Mm -hmm. We're going to build the high-speed trains and put it out for an RFP. See what's going to happen. There's someone you don't want to fund it yourself. Money. You're going to say it's going to be a triple P uh, project. Tell me what you want from me. I'm going to subsidize some parts. You're going to build, own, and operate and transfer it back to me in 30 years. But you use your money mm -hmm. to be able to run it. Let's see people bringing in their proposals. Announce the big water and sanitation things that you want to do, not only for South Africa, but for the rest of the company. Talk to the guy in Mozambique, talk to the guy in Zimbabwe, talk to the guy in Zambia, the DRC. We announce big uh, projects. Let me tell you, have something like announce big projects in telecoms. We need to wire this entire South Africa and the entire with high-speed fiber optic cable, mm -hmm. and we'll go via, via satellite into... So announce these big... Announce them today. There's nothing that's stopping you from announcing those mm -hmm. things today. You, what, what are you announcing? You're announcing that we want to build 100,000 kilometers of rail. Mm -hmm. New rail with, for high-speed trains. And one people who are going to... So you say, request for proposals. Watch what happens. It's going to ignite this place in a way in which you've never understood before. Mm -hmm. Because in the next 18 months and 24 months, what are we busy with? We're evaluating the damn bids. Mm -hmm. But what do you think happens to the Johannesburg Stock Exchange? What do you think happens to all these companies that have to shut down Basel Reed, uh, uh, Group 5, yeah, yeah. and all these guys? And, and, and what they start to do, they start to say, hey, guys, hey, guys, we don't have to close down now. Let's go back to the stock exchange. We need to raise a trillion because we need to participate in a lot of these particular programs. When you do that... And you know that it's not going to cost one cent. You start to tell people that something big and amazing, yeah. just like you go to Ethiopia, the place is becoming like what? It's becoming like a big construction site. Yeah. So you announce these things here. You're not going to do all of them. You may do two or three out of 12. But here's the thing. You announced all of them. Mm -hmm. And then you tell all of them, you know, the other nine, those guys were talking absolute rubbish. We could not do all those things that they were promoting. <laughs> but these other three... People are going to go to the stock exchange. They're going to write. Gonna Amazon, Amazon ran for years and years without making one cent of profit. One cent of profit. Because what Jeff Bezos was doing was, be, was building a franchise. He was building dominance in the market. He mm. kept going to the... The share price kept moving up all the time. But no money was actually being made by the company because all the things that he was doing, he was reinvesting. Mm -hmm. So South Africa has got that opportunity today because we're starting from scratch to be say that we're going to build this rail system between South Africa and Zambia. There's a lot of copper there. DRC is ripe. No countries to each other in DRC. Mm -hmm. But the reason people are not in the DRC is because there's no bloody infrastructure in that mm -hmm. particular place. We, we st stop talking too much about mm -hmm. corruption and someone... Uh, misadvised the president to say that if he talks a lot about corruption and state capture, he's got to get the money. Well, he's not going to get the money. <laughs> as I've just told you now, India, Brazil, China are far worse corrupt than we are. And they are getting the in, money. They're getting the money. And let me tell you here, our neighbors here, here ne next door, the Botswana, they're running the cleanest government in the history of democracy, not the history of Africa. The mm -hmm. history of democracy, that country is running the cleanest government. The unemployment rate there is 18%, 18% with the cleanest uh, government. Do you have any mega projects, any serious anything happening there? Nothing is happening in that place. The, the tax rate in Botswana is 25%. As an individual, you pay like 26% for income tax rate. So why do you think nothing is happening in that place? The cleanest government in, in, in this entire... You take uh, African continent, you take uh, what you call uh, South America, you take probably uh, uh, most of these Asian countries. 
Botswana is still number one mm-hmm. when it comes to the corruption index compared to those particular guys. Only people like Switzerland, big places, Belgium are better than Botswana. So tell me, why is there no investment coming? Why are they having 18% unemployment rate? South Taiwan uh, has got some less than 4% unemployment rate because we are not solving the same problem. So we want to be like Botswana. Mm. This is what we're doing. Yes. And then we're not going to have growth. We're not going to have unemployment. <laughs> reducing unemployment. We're not going to have investment because we're modeling ourselves around the road. We're not talking about the things that are going to help exactly. us in the short term. Exactly. That Alex, is the story. Thank you so much thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank for joining you. us. It's been thank an absolute you. pleasure. I wish we had more time. Sure. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this edition of uh, Frontline Conversations. We'll see you again next time. Thank you. Thank you. To keep up to date with public policy and current affairs, follow us on our social media platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn at Frontline Africa Advisory, Twitter, FA underscore advisory, Facebook, Frontline Africa Advisory, YouTube, Frontline Conversations, and our website, www.frontlineafrica.co.za. You don't want to miss out.